Section 16 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 2. The Wars. Chapter 1. The Turks. Section 1. First War. The period of which this volume treats may be said almost to open with a war, though little notice of it is taken in our histories as a war in which England had no part. Not only in our own day has there been an Eastern question. The Turks were always regarded by our ancestors as intruders in Europe. It is a little more than five hundred years since they first appeared, and we now seem reconciled to their presence. During this long period there have been great fluctuations in their power, but on the whole we may say that up to the seventeenth century their power was advancing. From that period it has been receding. We may select as the culminating point of their power their famous siege of Vienna in 1683. Their boundary line was then not more than a hundred miles from Vienna, the imperial city. John Sobieski, the king of Poland, an old opponent of the Turks, came to the rescue of the emperor. With a tremendous charge he overthrew the Turks and put them to headlong flight. All their belongings fell into his hands. It is no wonder that the people of Vienna were prepared almost to worship their deliverer. In the imperial army, which under Sobieski thus won the day, was a young officer of the age of twenty, a cadet of the House of Savoy, who in that war was serving his first campaign. Prince Eugène was among the first to carve his way through the serried ranks of the Turks. A great part of a life spent in fighting was to be devoted to fighting against them. During the fourteen years that followed the deliverance of Vienna, the war with Turkey continued until Eugène himself, finally defeating them in the great battle of Zenta, was able to put an end to the war by the Treaty of Karlovitz, which freed Hungary entirely from the Turks, with the exception of the Banat of Timisoara. It is said that Louis XIV had instigated the Turks to invade Austria. At any rate, by the cessation of the war, the emperor was free to take his part in the war of the Spanish succession, in which Eugène, who in the Turkish war had made himself the first general of the empire, continued to win laurels. No sooner had the Peace of Utrecht finished that war than the Turkish war broke out again. Whilst the Turks were still staggering under the blow dealt them at Vienna, it was promptly followed by another from the Republic of Venice. Venice once had such dominion over the lands beyond the Adriatic and in the Levant that it seems hardly exaggeration in the poet Wordsworth to say that she held the gorgeous East in fee. In the year that followed the deliverance of Vienna, the Venetians conquered the Morea from the Turks. For the Greek inhabitants, this was not freedom, but a change of masters. It was, however, a change from Turk to Christian. The Treaty of Karlovitz was made under the mediation of England and Holland, these two powers wanting the hands of the empire to be free. By their law, the Turks were not allowed to make peace with any Christian power. They could only make truces, and this truce, January 1699, was for twenty-five years. But peace or truce, the Turks had to acknowledge that Hungary belonged to Austria and the Morea to Venice. 
Meanwhile, the Turks had also been at war with Russia, but had not been successful, so that a year or two later, making truce with Russia, they left her Azov, now indeed an unimportant town with its harbor silted up, but valued by Peter the Great for Russia as giving her access to the Black Sea. It is necessary to remember these earlier facts in order to understand the war which broke out immediately after the Peace of Utrecht. Fifteen years had passed since the Treaty of Karlovitz. The Turks had been gathering strength and were ready to renew the conflict. They began with Russia and succeeded in winning back Azov. This success they followed up with the reconquest of the Morea from Venice, whereupon the Emperor determined to join Venice in resisting their further advance, and the sword of Eugène, which the treaties of Utrecht and Rastatt had set free, was employed once more against the Turks. The first great battle took place at Petro Varadin. Eugène's troops were mostly veteran soldiers with long experience in fighting in the Netherlands and elsewhere. In his earlier wars against the Turks, he had reason to complain of the bad treatment of his troops by the government, the lack of money, the lack of provisions, but now his army was splendidly appointed. As compared with the force of the Turks, it was small, not in larger proportion than one to three. Eugène was advised by his officers to make up for his small numbers by putting his men behind fortifications, but he had too much confidence in his soldiers and they in him to waste time in that way. Eugène has been described as like a fury in the day of battle, August 5, 1716. With zealous enthusiasm he dashed upon the enemy and in much less than half a day had routed them, taken their standards, their artillery, and an enormous quantity of booty. The Grand Vizier, who was himself commanding the Turkish troops, fell in the battle. The immediate result of this battle was that the Banat of Timisoara, the only part of Hungary yet under the Turks, was freed from their rule. A more wide-reaching result was that the victorious career of the Turks was checked. Princes and noble volunteers flocked to Eugène's camp. The liveliest interest was everywhere felt in his victories, and the hope was entertained that he might drive the Turks out of Europe. The Greek inhabitants of the countries held in subjection by the Turks held eager hands out to him as to a deliverer. In June 1717, Prince Eugène invested Belgrade, that unfortunate border city which from its position seemed to invite contest between Turks and Christians. It may be called the key of Hungary, and from one side or the other has stood seven sieges. The imperialists had not carried on the siege more than six weeks when an enormous Turkish army under the new Grand Vizier came up to relieve the city. Strong in numbers, the Turks advanced close to Eugène's lines, and his army was indeed in a critical position. His besieging force was weakened by sickness occasioned by the damp ground on which they had been encamped, and he had not more than 40,000 to oppose to some 200,000 fresh Turkish troops. Yet he saw that boldness was the best policy, and he determined without delay to attack the new army. It was about 15 days after it had taken up its position. At midnight, Eugène's troops started, but the attack in the early morning was partly helped and partly hindered by a mist which concealed the whole battlefield. There was help on the one hand in that for some time the advance was hidden by the enemy until the imperialists were close to them. There was hindrance on the other, evident when, 
as the mist cleared at about eight o'clock, Eugène saw that though his wings were conquering, there was a great gap in the centre of his line, and through this gap the Turks were preparing to press. Eugène ordered up his reserve and himself charged at the head of it. Then, whilst a fearful infantry fight ensued between his reserve and the Janissaries, he sent orders to his nearest cavalry regiments to charge on the flank of the latter. This gave him the victory, together with trophies of every kind, prisoners, cannon, standards, booty. Moreover, within a week, Belgrade capitulated. It seems almost a pity that Eugène did not follow up his great successes and drive the Turks out of Europe, or at least, by wresting more from them, confine them within narrower limits. It might have been possible to have won for Austria the whole Danube valley down to the river mouth, but Austria was weakened by the strain of her long wars, and Eugène had perforce to be content with his achievements. The peace of Pizarovitz, which ended the war, secured to Austria such portion of Hungary as was not already hers, the Banat of Timisoara, together with the town of Belgrade, and portions of Bosnia, Servia, and Wallachia. The Turks, however, retained the Morea, and Venice, their old enemy, was unable ever again to make head against them. This treaty of Pizarovitz, 1718, was also only a truce for twenty-five years, and peace lasted less than twenty. But when the war broke out again, the gallant Eugène was no longer alive to defeat his old opponents. Austria had reason to lament his loss. Section 2. The Second War The English ambassador at Vienna wrote to England shortly after the death of Prince Eugène. During the two last years of his life, even the remainder of what he had been kept things in some order, as his very yes or no during his sounder age had kept them in the best. The prince died in 1736, and it was very soon seen that in him the only general of the Austrians was lost, whilst the war office at Vienna had returned to his old and shameful condition. The influence of the Jesuits was too strong at the court, but still greater harm was done by the incompetence of the ministers, who allowed capable and unscrupulous underlings to manage the departments for their own interests. Yet the emperor, believing that everything was going on well, and that his war machine was in perfect order, rashly determined on joining Russia in a war against the Turks. To this the priests encouraged him, but the chief command of the army, in spite of them, was given to a Protestant general, Zeckendorf whom Eugène had himself selected. Had Zeckendorf found an army well provided, it is more than probable that he would have justified Eugène's confidence. He reported that all the frontier fortresses were dilapidated and incapable of the smallest resistance. He described his men as miserable and half-starved wretches. There were not as many troops as represented. The right amount for their pay was not sent. In consequence of Eugène's easy victories, the people at Vienna despised their enemy. But Eugène had an army of veterans, and had influence to see that they were adequately provided. Just as Zeckendorf had made preparations to open the campaign, he received an order from the emperor to commence it in a different part. This involved a march of twenty-eight days under a July sun. Nor was this the only interference of which he had to complain. The unfortunate man was only in appearance commander-in-chief. Operations were really being managed from Vienna, 
and by thoroughly incompetent men. The result was that after a series of disasters, Zeckendorf was recalled and the whole blame cast upon him. The Jesuits said that the failure was natural because Zeckendorf was a Protestant. He was put under arrest and kept in imprisonment. In the renewal of hostilities at the beginning of the next year, 1737, the command was given to the emperor's son-in-law, the Duke of Lorraine, a young man of thirty. But he was to do nothing without the advice of a majority in the council of war. The duke gained a slight success at first, which was hailed with great joy in Vienna. But this was very soon turned into mourning by the defeat of the duke. The Turks attacked with great spirit and drove the imperialists back. The imperialist army also suffered a great deal from sickness. The victory of the Turks was followed up, and the imperialists were shut up in Belgrade. The emperor was in great distress about this retreat of his troops upon Belgrade, and used to exclaim, Is the fortune of my empire departed with Eugène? In the next year, Belgrade was ceded to the Turks under circumstances disgraceful to the emperor, to his ministers, and to the generals whom he employed. The soldiers were anxious to fight and were indignant at the surrender, but the emperor was convinced by the defeats which he had suffered that he had no hope of prevailing against the Turks. He abandoned his ally Russia, who only obtained a condition that Azov should be demolished and occupied neither by Russians nor Turks, whilst the Russians gave up all claim to the navigation of the Black Sea. By the Peace of Belgrade, 1739, the emperor practically ceded all that had been gained at the Peace of Pasarovitz. The fortune of the empire had departed with the great Eugène. End of section 16